0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. No doubt almost all of you have seen the Hayek and Keynes
1: rap videos, uh, Fear the Boom and Bust, uh, Battle of the Century. I also like to think about my book as a very handy reference companion to those videos. Uh, And the reason I suggest that is because those videos have like three million hits. (laughs) (laughs) So you can do the math. Um, More seriously, this project began when uh, I was teaching at the University of Missouri St. Louis, I've been at uh, George Mason just three years now. And two weeks before the semester uh, started, I was drafted to teach the department's course on the history of economic thought. And since I had so little time to prepare, you know, a rigorous course, uh, from Aristotle to the present. I had the desperate idea that I could sort of cobble together a course by, at each class meeting, showing an excerpt, like seven to ten minutes from the PBS documentary, The Commanding Heights. The first uh, two hours of which talk about the intellectual debates of the 20th century, particularly as personified by Hayek and Keynes. Uh, and showing the video segments at the start of each class would not only kill some time, uh, it would also make Keynes and Hayek real to the students because after all now they're not just guys in books, they're on TV. Uh, It actually I think worked that way Um, and it would have the benefit of teaching the students some economic history, sort of putting the debate in the framework of what the big issues at the time were and teaching economic history was not only a virtue in its own right, but it would allow me to pad my lectures with material that were in my course on economic history that I'd already taught before. Um, And then I would spend the rest of the class going more deeply into what the commanding heights had glossed over in just a few minutes. Um, And I I don't know about the students, but to me, it actually made the course interesting to teach. And I thought, uh, I, I put a lot of work into it actually, as it turned out by the end of the semester and then it turned out to take even a lot more work to turn the lecture notes, uh, into a book, uh, but in places you can still see sort of the skeleton of the commanding heights kind of lurking in the background. So in many respects, this is a book in the history of economic thought, but I like to think it's a little more than that, or it's an atypical, uh, history of thought because it only covers the good parts. That is, it, it only covers the economic theory and the empirical work that are useful uh, for economic policy, not the esoteric, purely blackboard parts. Um, because it focuses on the policy, uh, issues, it's organized I- issue by issue, so each chapter deals with a particular area of, uh, a particular policy dispute, um, and frames that debate with a historical event that brought these, uh, contrasting ideas to the forefront so it 's not one of these encyclopedic histories of economic thought that, as I said, start in, uh, with the Aristotle or the Scholastics and move in chronological order. Uh, you might call the but then, as necessary, within each chapter, uh, to understand what people were talking about in the last hundred years, I go back to what earlier economists said uh, as far back as Adam Smith, and so it 's somewhat non chronological within each chapter uh, and to defend this in the introduction to the book I quote uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, who told an interviewer that when I made, uh, quoting, when I made Reservoir Dogs in Pulp Fiction non-linear I was not just doing it to show what a clever boy I was, those stories were better served dramatically to be done the way I did them uh, and I think actually in, in some ways uh, the most vivid way to tell a, the story of an intellectual bait will often involve these kinds of flashbacks. So, don't think of the book's narrative as chronologically scrambled. Think of it as (laughs) Tarantino-esque, only with more polite language and less bloodshed. Uh, Each chapter of the book begins with a a little vignette, which uh, is related to the events that I'm describing, or the personalities uh, in the chapter. And I want to relate some of those to you because I think It's the best hook I've got for making you want to buy the book if you haven't bought it already. Uh, And so, I've got seven and a half minutes, that works out to 30 seconds per chapter. So, this will be like going to iTunes to sample a CD, right? You get 30 seconds of each track. Uh, The first chapter is entitled The Turn from Laissez-faire, and it tries to set the stage by discussing uh, the views, the contrasting views of economists, on the eve of the First World War, and in particular, the declining uh, adherence to the doctrine of laissez-faire. So to introduce the two central characters, we visit uh, Cambridge, uh, University of Cambridge in the fall of 1905, where a clever mathematics student named John Maynard Keynes is taking his first and only uh, course in economics from Alfred Marshall. And uh, Keynes writes to a friend of his, I think I'm rather good at it. It's so easy and fascinating to master the principles of these things. And then a week later, he writes, Marshall is continually pestering me to turn professional economist. Uh, Then we dramatically switch to the uh, banks of the Piave River in northern Italy during the First World War, uh, and there's a young lieutenant named Friedrich Hayek who has a chance to open his first economics texts during a lull in the combat, Uh, Hayek later says, he's surprised that these books didn't give him a permanent distaste for economics, they were so badly written and so Germanic. Uh, but when he returned to the University of Vienna after the war, Hayek discovered the work of Karl Menger, which got him hooked on economics. Uh, in chapter two, uh, chapter two is about the Bolshevik revolution and the socialist calculation debate, begins with a letter written by Lenin to the Bolsheviks, uh, or the Bavarian socialists who had just, seized power in Munich and declared a Bavarian Soviet Republic and Lenin gives them advice about how to consolidate power, but he doesn't offer them any advice about how to run the economy once the factories and the farms and the banks have all been seized, and and this is Lenin's problem. Uh, He wanted to institute a Marxist economy, but Marx hadn't left any blueprint, only sort of visionary statements about uh, abolishing private property and putting the direction of production into the hands of the collective, but not really any guidelines for what the collective is supposed to do. So segue to the famous debate over socialist economic calculation. Uh, chapter three is the Roaring Twenties in Austrian Business Cycle Theory. It begins with the story of Irving Fisher and the stock market crash. Maybe you know this story. Uh, Fisher invented something kind of like the Rolodex, sold it, took what he got and parlayed it into a fairly big fortune on the stock market uh worth about 10 million dollars reportedly which is about 130 some million dollars today he became known as a stock market prognosticator and in on October 15th 1929 he's at a, a dinner meeting as a speaker in New York City and as reported in the New York Times he tells the audience that stock prices had reached quote what looks like a permanently high plateau uh, 2 weeks later of course the market crashed Fisher was wiped out because he had borrowed, he was putting his money where his mouth was. He had borrowed heavily to buy stocks on margin. Uh, He had to, he was so wiped out he had to sell his house and move in with his sister-in-law, he had no other place to live. Economists around the world, of course, are puzzled by the crash and try to explain it. So segue uh, in, for the purposes of this chapter to the Mises-Hayek theory. And later I'll talk about the Keynesian theory and the monetarist theory of the Great Depression. Uh, chapter four, the New Deal and Institutionalist Economics begins just with a slight bit of, uh, (coughs) bias, I suppose. Uh, with Rexford Tugwell sitting in a marble clad lobby in Rome, Italy in October 34. Tugwell's a member of the Brain Trust, and advisor to FDR. And he's in Rome to talk to Mussolini, uh, who he admires very much. Uh, or admired his economic policies anyway. Uh, In his diary, Tugwell had written that Mussolini's regime was doing many of the things that seemed to me necessary and was the cleanest, neatest, most efficiently operating piece of social machinery I've ever seen. It makes me envious. (laughs) Okay, a little bit unfair, but um, segue to uh, the ideas that Tugwell got from institutionalist economics and from others, other writers, and how those ideas were inputs into the policies of the New Deal. Chapter 5 is the Great Depression and Keynes' General Theory. So, right, 1932, the Depression had barely begun, but by the time of Keynes' General Theory in 36, it was very deep. Um, well, it had started to recover, actually, but there was a relapse, of course, in 1937, 1938. Uh, the chapter begins with Keynes writing a letter to a correspondent, who, as it turns out, is George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright. Shaw was more famous as a playwright today, but At the time, he was just as well-known as an amateur economist and member of the Fabian Society and had been the author of many, many pamphlets and book chapters uh, advocating various uh, schemes for socializing uh, the economy. So, Keynes writes to Shaw, uh, this is in 1935, while he's writing the general theory, to understand my state of mind, you have to know that I believe myself to be writing a book on economic theory which will largely revolutionize, not I suppose, at once, but in the course of the next ten years, the way the world thinks about economic problems. A bold statement, but of course it turns out to be true. And of course Keynes's influence is confirmed, famously confirmed, when Richard Nixon tells an interviewer in 1971, I am now a Keynesian in economics. Uh, chapter six is World War the Second World War and Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And this is one of my favorite stories. It begins in the spring of 1933 when two German SS agents uh, come knocking at the door of the uh, classical liberal German economist Wilhelm Repke. Uh, you all know who the SS are. Uh, Repke later recalled that these particular agents were, quote, of thorough bruiser type. At least that's how his memoir was translated. Uh, Repke had been giving speeches denouncing the Nazi party. Uh, he had been declared an enemy of the people for that and fired from his teaching post at Marburg University, and in general the Nazis had tried to replace all the anti-Nazis uh, in the universities, but their their main strategy was to go to the professors who had been fired and say, you can have your job back if you'll keep quiet, and Repke refused to do that. And when the SS agents explained to him that he ought to be on their side, uh, he rebuked them with what he called scorn and indignation. But as soon as he slammed the door on them as they left, he realized he needed to leave the country <laughs> immediately. And he spent the rest of the war in Istanbul. Uh, chapter seven, post-war British socialism and the Fabian society, it begins with Clement Attlee leading the Labor Party into victory in 1945. Uh, and the political scientist Harold Lasky, who was an important socialist theorist, uh actually had an office just down the hall from Hayek's. Uh, a, a series of newspaper stories by a paper that was hostile to the Labor Party reported favorable statements Lasky was making about the Soviet Union uh, and even about Stalin's government. And Attlee wasn't pleased by this and he sent Lasky a private message that read, a period of silence on your part would be welcome. Uh, after winning the election, Lasky had a press conference at which He insisted to the reporters that he would be making policy, not Professor Lasky. And the New York Times responded to this by running a headline, a story with the headline, quote, Britain not ruled by intellectuals. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chapter 8 is sort of the counterpart to the uh, Fabian society, so segue to a discussion of the Fabian society, what their ideas were, where they got them, and how they uh, went into the Labor Party. Uh, Chapter 8 is a a kind of a counterpart, it's the Mont Pelerin Society and the Rebirth of Smithian Economics. In an earlier draft, the title was, The Rebirth of Spontaneous Order Economics, but I was persuaded by Dan Klein to change it to Smithian. Well, by Dan and a friend of his named Joy. Uh, That's an inside Mason joke. Uh, This chapter begins in a small Swiss village uh, above the northern shore of Lake Geneva in April 47, where another German economist, Walter Eucken, uh, was peeling and eating an orange and really, really enjoying it. And George Stigler notes this in his uh, recollection of the event. And why was he really, really enjoying the orange so much? Well, he'd spent the war in Germany. There were no oranges, at least if you weren't in the party elite. And Euchen was, in fact, uh, an anti-Nazi. Uh, he had remained in Germany for the duration of the war. He was almost arrested because he was a friend of Karl Gerdler, who was involved in the Valkyrie plot. I don't know if you saw the Tom Cruise movie. Um, Throughout the book, I have footnotes recommending movies. Uh, (laughs) And then segue to the connection between running from Adam Smith to uh, F. A. Hayek by way of Karl Menger. um, And the contrast between the Mont Pelerin Society and the Fabian Society. Uh, Chapters nine and ten are kind of a pair. Nine is on the post-war German wonder economy and ordoliberalism liberalism liberalism being the ideology behind uh, the market-friendly policies. Uh, that chapter begins, uh, sorry, it's paired with chapter 10, which is about the very different policies adopted in India. Chapter 9 begins with a telephone ringing in the office of Ludwig Erhard, who was the uh, director of the economic administration of the UK-US occupied by zone, uh, a classical liberal economist who, just by happenstance, got this job. Uh, At the other end of the line was the American military commander of the region, General Lucius Clay. Lucius Clay's office had gotten word that in the speech Erhard was about to give, introducing the uh, new Deutschmark to replace the old Reichsmark, that he was going to go beyond that and announce decontrol of many prices and the end of rationing for those goods. Which had not been officially cleared uh, by the Allied authorities. So Erhard comes on the line, and General Clay says to him, Professor Erhard, my advisors tell me that you are making a big mistake. And Erhard replies, eh, So my advisors also tell me. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's the way Erhard later told the story. I'm not sure it's completely accurate. But uh, the decontrol went ahead, and Germany's economy boomed. Uh, Things went very differently in uh, India. Chapter 10 is Indian planning and development economics, uh, but it's lately been known unofficially as Tyler Cowan's favorite chapter. Uh, it begins with Peter Bauer, the uh, Hungarian-turned-English economist, uh, development economist, visiting India for the first time in 1958. Uh, and he's looking for an Indian economist named B.R. Chenoy. He's looking for Chenoy because In 1955, when the Indian government introduces the second five-year plan, they appoint a committee of economists, a panel of 21 economists, to review the plan and offer their endorsement or suggestions. And 20 of the economists signed a statement endorsing the plan. Chinoy was the only dissenter, and he issued a dissenting note criticizing the plan, uh, saying that uh, market forces would do a better job allocating resources. And this note of dissent was uh, a real annoyance to the members of the Indian Planning Commission, to the Prime Minister Nehru, to Nehru's uh, advisor who had drafted the plan, whose name was Mahalo Nobis, and to the international aid officials who were all behind this effort. Uh, But Bauer, being a critic of the plan himself, was eager to meet Shanoi. So he went to the uh, British High Commission and asked them whether uh, they were in any sort of contact with Chenoy, and the official he spoke to uh, replied that uh, we're too busy to have time for acknowledged madmen. <laughs> That's how uh, unwelcome Chenoy was in official circles. How much time am I running out of? No, okay. Oh, at this pace, I can do it. Uh, chapter 11 is Bretton Woods and in International Monetary Thought. It begins precisely at 3 p.m. on the 6th of July, 1944, when Harry Dexter White's daily press conference has a guest star, which is John Maynard Keynes. White was the head of the U.S. delegation. Keynes was the head of the British delegation. Um, And the reporters were very eager to hear Keynes, because he was still something of a economic policy rock star, you might say. Uh, World renowned and still intellectually vigorous, although, kind of worn out. In fact, a few days later he had a heart attack. Uh, Keynes, of course, was not a friend of the gold standard, and he had written in 1924 that the gold standard is already a barbarous relic. Uh, At the Bretton Woods press conference, Keynes likened the gold standard to a dictator. Uh, He said the gold standard should not continue to exercise what he called tyrannical powers over the world. Uh, Instead, the work of the conference was to limit gold to the road of to the role of, quote, a monarch subject to constitutional limitations. And this way of putting it was kind of odd to those economists on the other side who viewed the gold standard itself as a useful constitutional constraint, uh, on government, monetary, and fiscal policies. So, segue to the, uh, economists' understanding of the gold standard and, and their criticisms of it, uh, over the years. After Bretton Woods breaks down, or simultaneous with the breakdown of Bretton Woods, uh, inflation picks up in the U.S., so Chapter 12 is the Great Inflation and Monetarism, because monetarism comes to the forefront as a way of explaining uh, the inflation, the chapter begins with Milton Friedman writing a column in Newsweek, applauding the appointment of Arthur Burns to head the central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve System. Friedman had studied with Burns, uh, so he was something Uh, Burns was something of a mentor to him, Uh, and Friedman in his column urges Burns to control money growth in order to avoid inflation. But as Fed chairman, Burns very quickly begins to blame inflation on everything other than monetary policy, uh, to cost push factors. He talks about how the economy is not working the way it's supposed to, because inflation is going up at the same time that unemployment is going up. Uh, so just three weeks, sorry, three months after he writes this Newsweek column, Friedman, although he's a friend of Burns, writes him a very stern r- letter, uh, criticizing his arguments, criticizing his policy proposals, and by all accounts, the two were never very good friends after that. Uh, segue to a description of the great inflation and, the monetarist, uh, explanation of it. Uh, Chapter 13 tries to cover the growth of government, public goods, and public choice, as public goods and public choice being alternative explanations for why government has grown. Right, public goods theory tells us there's a demand for government, and uh, uh, by the public, who get the benefits of government. Uh, public choice theory tells us there's a demand f- from people who are not the general public, who get the benefit. Um, but the chapter begins with the famous dinner party at which Ronald Coase is defending his article about the FCC to a group of Chicago economists. Even though the article's already been published in the Journal of Law and Economics, uh, Friedman and Stigler and others are not buying what later became known as the Coase Theorem. Uh, And this dinner, Coase knew this, and this dinner was to give him a chance to defend his view uh, against everybody else. The way Stigler later recalls the event is that uh, quote, we strongly objected to this heresy, the Coase theorem. Milton Friedman did most of the talking, as usual. He also did much of the thinking, as usual. Uh, In the course of two hours of argument, the vote went from 20 against and one for Coase, that being Coase himself, uh, to 21 for Coase. What an exhilarating event. I lamented afterward that we had not the clairvoyance to tape it. Uh, Coase's recollection was pretty similar. He knew that he was going to survive when he said uh, if Milton Friedman can't knock you out after a couple of rounds, (laughs) uh, you're home. Afterward, Aaron Director asked Coase to write up the arguments he had just made. The result was an article called The the Problem of Social Cost. Went on to become probably the single most cited article uh, in economics. Segway to the public goods problem and, and its use as a rationale for the growth of government and the critique offered by Public Choice School. Chapter 14 uh, is Free Trade Protectionism and Trade Deficits, where I borrow shamelessly from Doug Irwin's work. Uh, begins with Milton Friedman testifying before the US Trade Deficit Review Commission in 1999, and he's wearing an Adam Smith necktie. And one of the commissioners says, oh, I see you're wearing an Adam Smith necktie. They have a little exchange, he says, uh, So how do you think Adam Smith would have felt about the WTO, (laughs) the World Trade Organization? And Friedman replies, well, in my opinion, the best policy we can follow is to unilaterally remove our restrictions on trade. And this unilaterally part is something that has always been controversial, and certainly hard for politicians to grasp. So segue to the case that Adam Smith made for that proposition, um, and the case made for it and against it by later economists. The case against it most importantly being the infant industry argument. And finally, Chapter 15 brings us up to the present under the title From Pleasant Deficit Spending to Unpleasant Sovereign Debt Crisis. So it talks about uh, Keynesian fiscal theory or so-called Keynesian fiscal theory. We were just talking before the event about to what extent it was Keynesian. Um, But the anecdote I begin with is one I was actually present at, at the Cato Monetary Conference two years ago, uh, George Tavlis from the Bank of Greece, note Greece, uh, gets up to speak and he says uh, to this American audience, well, it's a pleasure to be in the United States again, which more than ever feels like being at home. <laughs> well, you responded a lot more quickly than the audience at the time. You can go back and watch the videotape, and there's kind of some nervous titters. <laughs> and, and makes it clear what he means that the US fiscal deficits remind him of Greece, so the chapter goes on to discuss fiscal Keynesianism, the idea that deficit spending, unless you're at full employment, is a free lunch, or better than a free lunch, uh, if the multiplier is more than one, Uh, Buchanan and Wagner's critique of that, um, the argument that deficits do uh, burden future generations the idea of Ricardian equivalence, uh, and the idea of unpleasant monetarist arithmetic, which helps to explain, I think, uh, the fix that Greece and other Eurozone countries are in. So, thank you for your patience as I tried to cover all that. (laughs) There's more in the book, believe me, (laughs) more details and footnotes, but thanks very
0: much.